0: Really, something for a geologist, believe me. <laughs> you know, we tend to uh, work in uh, relative obscurity most of the time, uh, alone a lot out in the field, and quite <laughs> frankly, we like it that way uh, as much as possible. But when somebody is willing to uh, listen to us talk about our work, we love to talk about it. <coughs> and as my my kids will attest, we talk and we talk and we talk. But uh, I can assure you that Brian has put very strict time limits on me, so uh, that won't happen tonight. We'll just uh, move right along. And (coughs) so let me start with this. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never end, for here it is, too, that nature presents to the view of the traveler, Vast ranges of walls of tolerable workmanship. So perfect indeed are those walls that that I should have thought that nature had attempted there to rival the human art of masonry. (coughs) Meriwether Lewis wrote those words May 31st, 1805 on this exact spot, viewing this exact scene that you're looking at today. This is the uh, Eagle Creek campground, Eagle Creek, uh, the mouth of Eagle Creek is just upstream from here, a couple hundred yards. And, as many of you, I'm sure, are quite familiar with, uh, Lewis and Clark journals, and the writings of, uh, Meriwether Lewis in particular, and you know, the meticulous care he took in keeping notes about the flora and fauna of the, of his journey. But, To a geologist, when we go back and read those notes, we see a real lack of detail or even a lack of interest in the actual geology of what what he was observing. Um, Most of the descriptions are similar to what I just read. He obviously was very pleased and impressed with what he saw, but really did not have the background to provide any sort of geologic interpretation to what he saw. And there's, I think I have a theory about why this is. We could talk about later if there's time, but uh, tonight what we'll try to do is put some flesh on his descriptions and uh, hopefully get a little better understanding ourselves of of what we're looking at. Now, I'm not going to try to... uh, teach you a lot of terms or, uh, have you walk away thinking, "Oh, geez, that was more like a lecture than a slide talk. Uh, but there are a couple, just two things that I, that I want you to learn before we move, move much further. Uh, first of all, most of the rocks that you will see on the river and that we, we will see in these, in these slides, are sedimentary rocks deposited during the Cretaceous period approximately 100 million years ago. Now, that's not one of the two things that I wanted you to learn, (laughs) but that's, uh, (laughs) that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, what I want you to keep, what, what I would like you to learn and understand is what the uh, environment was at that time. During the Cretaceous, The continent of North America existed, but a deep trough had developed right through the middle of it, north to south. Um, I've I've noticed that uh, cursors take a while to come back, so I'm gonna have to just kind of point at things, rather than wait for the cursor to keep coming around. There it is. the trough developed right up through here that essentially allowed uh, Atlantic Ocean waters or the Gulf of Mexico waters you can think of as just flooding right up through the middle of the continent to meet waters coming down from the Arctic Ocean to the north. And what this did then was create a body of o- the ocean right in here. It was a, a shallow ocean, it wasn't like the deep ocean troughs in the Atlantic and the Pacific, but it was ocean nonetheless, and off to the, off to the west, we had the precursors of the uh, Rocky Mountains rising up and shedding debris towards the oceans. Okay, now th- this is one of the things I want you to remember. The second thing is what happens when sediment material is carried in streams and rivers and so on off the mountains to the west. What happens when that material hits the ocean? Just a one simple concept. The, the movement of that material is caused by the movement of the water that is carrying it towards the ocean when those waters hit the ocean shore the the material drops out and it drops out in order the coarsest material first the finer material further on out so and oh, first of all you notice where we are right along here, we're right on the edge of this ocean, we're right along the the shore of this ocean. So if you look at, well, okay, so what we had was the mountains uplifting to the west, um, Cretaceous seas to the east, material being shed down, a broad coastal plain developed between the ocean and the mountains and a shoreline environment right at the, at the water's edge. You can think of this as a beach. Uh, in actual fact, it's more than a beach. You've got offshore bars developing, and so on. Um, but it's a, essentially a shoreline, devi- uh, environment. So if you look at the top diagram here, you've got land rising to the west, Broad mud flats coming towards the sea, uh, starting to drop the material that coarser sands, quartz sands material here, first of all, uh, to develop these offshore bars primarily. Um, this is what I say, you can think of this as a beach, but probably with <laughs> this muddy marine environment behind it, it really wasn't the type of a beach that you might like to think about swimming off of. Behind all of this, had lagoons developing, a lot of uh, vegetative growth, tremendous amount of vegetative material developing back here. So beneath it, you had peat developing over the years. Now, we're going to see these sandstones uh, in a moment and you might think, first of all, let me ask, how many have ever gone down the river? Oh, a lot of you. I'm so glad of that. I'm so glad. Great trip, isn't it? Um, Okay, and you saw a lot of sandstone, but you didn't see a linear structure like a beach like this. You saw sandstone covering hundreds of square miles in aerial extent. Well, the reason for that is the shoreline was not static. There were times when the sea would transgress upon the land and as it moved westward, these sands are laid out in a flat, aerial manner so that you have broad spreading of, uh, of these beach-type sands over an aerial extent and this is uh, muddy material, you see up, up here, the muddy material moved out further than the sands, so as this, as the ocean transgresses upon the land, this muddy material comes up and over the sand material that was laid down at the shoreline. The sand material is coming down on top of the peat and swampy material that was deposited behind, and all of that is moving over the mudflats material that was deposited on on the shore, uh, b- excuse me, behind all of this. So, what you end up with then is this peat material being crushed into coal. We have a lot of coal uh, along the river. The sand being, uh, indurated and and pressured to, uh, become harder sandstone. You got these marine muds coming along that, uh, under, under pressure become shales, this, which is really just mud that's been squashed to the extent that it, it develops layers. All of this then is, uh, running over the, the, uh, uh, terrestrial muds that were behind it all and if that isn't enough well at times the sea turned around went the other direction and regressed back out towards the deeper sea and this shoreline so the shoreline moved eastward so now you you duplicate everything in reverse so you've got uh, terrestrial muds, you've got coals, you've got sandstone developed, you've got marine shales in here, um, more sandstone and coals developing on top of the sandstone. And that's the second thing I want you to, to remember, because we'll be seeing um, what how this manifests itself today. And, you know, I, sh- I show this as though we knew this model when we arrived, but we didn't. We learned it by looking at the very rocks that you see along the river. The rocks tell the story themselves. Now, when you're going down the river, well, first of all, this, this so this is the stratigraphic column that, that results, and I'm not going to ask you to remember these, these names, but I'll say them once here. At the lowest level that you'll see is marine shales. That, that uh, formation's been called the Mer- Marias River Formation. Up above that, you've got the eagle formation where you have the beautiful white cliffs, the sandstones that uh, really dominate the uh, certain parts of the river and add so much to the grandeur of the whole thing with, with coal right on top of it. You go above that, you're back into the Claggett Shale, which is a marine shale. Above the Claggett Shale is the Judith River Formation, which is actually terrestrial. It's got a lot of riverine type deposits, a lot of swamp, a lot of uh, coal deposits in it, and some sands. And then back into the Bear Paw Shale, which is a marine uh, formation. And below this, then, this, this is the entire Cretaceous sequence that you'll see in the, along the river. Beneath this, that you don't see, is about 4,000 feet of sedimentary rocks representing 500 million years of deposition. Below that is the hard metamorphic Precambrian basement rocks that are two and a half billion years old uh, beneath Montana. So that is the stratigraphic column, and the uh, the entire sequence doesn't just lay flat along the river regionally there's a slight eastern tilt to it all, so that as you leave Fort Benton, if you're going down the river in a canoe the uh, first rocks you come into are the Marais River marine shales, which are the lower part of this, uh, exposure here. Ignore this upper part for a minute. We're gonna come to, back to that. It's a completely different story right there. But this is, this is typical of the marine shales that, uh, are on the river. Not very exciting looking rocks, um, But, uh, they are layered, they're flattened, they have, um, show the effects of pressure. As I say, they're just simply a mudstone that is showing those layering effects of, of pressure and so on. You go, the next rocks, next formation you're gonna run into is the Eagle Sandstone above the Marias River Shales. Remember, this is our, our beach-type sand that is spread all over the countryside out here when you get used to looking at these exposures you can recognize shale horizons by the topography that doesn't stand, tend to stand up as as a cliff like the sandstone does so this is shale up above that's the Claggett shale below here believe it or not that I'm It's very recognizable as a shale horizon down here. That's the Marias River shales. So, here's the the coal seam at the top of the Eagle Sandstone right up here in a good exposure. It's not well exposed in very many places because it just doesn't hold up well. Uh, things slump down over it and so on, and this is, this is very high-quality coal. Uh, about 10,000 BTU coal, if any of you know this, uh, these terms. Uh, that's a high-energy coal, very low-sulfur, clean-burning, but it's only, uh, a couple feet thick at the most, so completely uneconomic, uh, to consider mining it. Is this is the same coal seam up above here. Now, that looks like more than two feet thick, but there's a lot of kind of carbonaceous shale uh, above it that makes it look thicker than it actually is. This is the Eagle Sandstone here. That's my field crew from one of, uh, one of the trips, alert and ready to <laughs> do my bidding at any time. Uh, <laughs> waiting for me. Those are my, some of my kids, actually. Oh, Dad, come on, let's get going. I heard a lot of that from them over the years. (laughs) Okay. um, This is um, Lewis and Clark Campsite of uh, May 27th, 1805. It's now one of the BLM campgrounds. I can't remember the name of it. Um, But from this point, from this location, Lewis uh, looked uh, landward and saw this scene, and he wrote this, right at this point. Some coal or carbonated wood still makes its appearance in these bluffs. Pumice stone and burnt hills, its concomitants also are seen. Now... I pointed out earlier that uh, Murrayweather-Lewis didn't make a lot of astute geologic observations, but I think this one is particularly astute because what he was looking at is this is a coal seam going right across here. Up here is burnt uh, shale, uh, baked shale and burnt, burned by uh, ignition of the coal beneath it. Uh, which would have been ignited by a lightning strike or a prairie fire some, who knows how many hundreds, thousands of years ago. And Lewis recognized this. And I, I would venture a guess that one in er, nine and ten canoers going down the river have no idea what they're looking at when they look back here. But he did recognize this, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Now, my favorite period in the history of this river really is the steamboat history of the 1860s and 70s. Uh, To me, the uh, concept of one of these behemoth machines coming up this treacherous river through a virtual wilderness for weeks to get from St. Louis to Fort Benton, It's just mind-boggling to me and I just would love to be a time traveler and get on one of those things and see what it was like. But what I want to point out with this, and this is a painting by Gary Lucy. I think you've probably, most of you have seen it. I think it's just a terrific painting. He got the geology right. He got a lot of detail on the boat, the water. It seems right, but look right here. That is, wood that's firewood they fired these things with firewood that uh, renegade characters called uh, woodhawks that sometimes Audubon people will run for to their bird book to look for that but <laughs> these are these are guys that <laughs> these are guys that uh, you know gathered the wood back in the coolies brought it down sold it to the steamboats as they came by the steamboats burned wood, Yet we know, you and I know, there's a coal seam right up here. This, this boat came by numerous high-quality coal seams to get to this point. In fact, it went completely across the, uh, Fort Union Formation, the big coal fields of eastern Montana and, and North Dakota that, uh, are being mined today. But they burned wood, they never burned the coal. And I have a theory about that, that I don't want to take the time to go into, but uh, if we have time later, I can, it just boggles my mind too that they just burned coal and never picked up on burning, or burned wood, never picked up on burning the coal. And I wonder, had they figured that out, what might, changes might have taken place through this countryside, you know, 150 years ago when they were coming through if they learned, if they knew they could burn this coal and get a lot more energy out of it than they get out of the wood. The coal was mined, uh, in many small operations by local homesteaders, uh, for, for their own use, uh, very small mines, a lot of accidents in those little mines, you can, uh, good historical, project, I think, would be to go into the USGS uh, records and you can find accident reports from some of these little operations. It was also mined uh, on a larger scale further downriver in the early part of the 20th century to uh, generate electricity for the uh, gold mines up in in the little Rocky Mountains. Other than that, There's been no use put for this coal. Across from the Eagle Creek Campground, I'm sure everybody recognizes, um, LaBarge Rock. Some 50 million years after the deposition of the sedimentary rocks that we've been looking at, changes uh, took place in the Earth's crust that allowed molten material from deep within the crust to come up, uh, through various conduits to the surface. And the surface at that time was a long way above where we see it today, probably a couple thousand feet. But, so the, the surface volcanic features that you might look for, uh, are all gone. They're all eroded away. But what we do see, um, is these features such as Labarge Rock, which typically they're one of uh, three or four types of features. A plug or a neck, which is just a conduit from down deep for this igneous material to come up, and the softer material eroding away, so we have something like Labarge Rock sitting up on top here. Some of the uh, more spectacular features, uh, are actually igneous dikes, and a dike is a, is an igneous uh, mass that came up through a, a narrow fracture in the rock and filled this fracture pane, uh, plane uh, over some distance. Uh, you also have what we call sills, which are c- kind of like a dike, except that they're horizontal, they f- tend to follow the uh, bedding planes of the, of the sedimentary rocks. So those three types of, uh, of features identified by their origin and shapes is what you see when you're looking at the igneous rocks in the area. And it's, these igneous rocks really, I think, punctuate the beauty of the lighter-colored sandstones and so on and really lend a lot of, uh, uh, beauty to the whole, whole area. So, LaBarge Rock, again, then, is a plug. Uh, it's a neck of a, of a volcano that extruded way up above where we are today. And that's my co-author, uh, Dr. Woodward, in the front of the canoe there, with his notebook and all that. And, uh, I was his student 40 years ago. You see what I'm doing in the back of the, Once a student, always a student. I learned that as soon as we started on this project. (laughs) Believe me, inviting your, one of your old profs to go down the Missouri River in a canoe for a week or two uh, is a book in itself. it's, it's really, really a lot of fun. We had a great deal of fun. Okay. Grand Natural Wall, just downstream from Eagle Creek, is... What would you say that is from the, from the shapes? That's a dike. Yeah, that's a dike standing up there. These rocks are much harder than the surrounding sediment, or sedimentary rocks, so they stand up long after the sedimentary rocks are gone. But these guys are on their way out the door too, uh, just a little slower. Citadel rock, made famous, of course, in a painting by uh, Bodmer. What do you think this is? A plug. Yeah, this 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 is a plug, just like Labarge rock. Um, so those uh, dominant, prominent uh, igneous formations are well known to river travelers, and as I say, I think add a great deal to the uh, beauty of the area, and (coughs) uh, the reason for them being there is a real mystery to geologists. Uh, we don't usually see a lot of volcanic activity this far from the continental margins, but it, but they're there and geologists are studying this all the time. Not only are they in a strange location, but there's some really weird rock types. Uh, mixed in with this stuff. One of them is named Shonkinite, for Shonkin Creek, up near Fort Benton, and a little town of Shonkin. This slide, (coughs) this is Bullwacker Cooley. Now, despite all of the observations that uh, Lewis and Clark did make, they completely missed the most exciting geologic feature on, in the whole stretch of river, uh, right up this coulee. Now, Clark had climbed, uh, to a high point, um, not far from this coulee, where he first saw the Rocky Mountains. And he wrote some real cheery things about that. Um, they've been looking for those mountains for a long time, and he walked back down through this coulee right there where we're looking uh, probably whistling a happy tune he may have he may have seen this feature off to his right but had not a clue what he was looking at or didn't bother to to mention it what we're looking at here is a feature called a diatreme <laughs> and a diatreme is like an igneous plug that we just looked at, except that this guy, these types of formations tap into, almost into the mantle of the Earth, some 50 miles down. And the material that came up them, came up them with explosive force and speed. It must have been a horrific thing to see on the surface. Unfortunately, we've never witnessed one. Nobody is alive, or nobody, there hasn't been one for (laughs) a few million years, so uh, it's all speculation. But these guys, theoretically, there's one interpretation, they, they tend to be cone-shaped like this, they broaden out at the top, because of the explosive force that's taking place, but there's also speculation that they were coming up so fast that a cyclone effect developed in the material coming up and actually gouged out the, uh, the upper levels of, of, the, of the rocks. Now, they came up also so fast that they brought with them, this is how they know how we know how deep they are they came from. They brought with them, minerals that can only form like 30 to 50 miles deep uh, in the Earth's crust and they, we know the stuff came up really fast because if you tap into that material and bring it up slowly, those minerals would decrepitate and equilibrate to the uh, environment that they're passing through, the lower pressure, lower temperature, but they're preserved. In the, in the rocks that we see up here. So we know they came up at, you know, 50, 100 miles an hour perhaps. One of these minerals you know real well. Somebody sh- should be able to figure it out. You married women, check your ring finger. <laughs> Diamond, yeah. This is where diamonds come from. They're mined in these diaf- diatreme, deposits in South Africa and North, Northern Canada. <coughs> as far as I know, there haven't been any diamonds found in this particular diatrine, but there have been, not far from here, from there, uh, around Grass Range and some other places, um, a few really nice diamonds, but not many, not very many. So, this is another view this, this layering effect that we see over here, that's from material collapsed back down into the, uh, cauldron that was developed, everything just kind of collapsed on itself. Uh, really spectacular things to look at. Jointing has played a very prominent role in the develop-, in the development of the landscape of the, of the area. This, line you see here is a joint in the Eagle Sandstone and it's a crack that develops when rocks are folded. If you have layered rocks and you fold them like this, pressure from the sides, you get tension developed along the upper side of the fold. And that tension uh, results in strain, which has to be accommodated in some way, so the rock will crack up along along the upper side of these folds, and these cracks are called joints. If we uh, if there's movement on the crack, we call it a fault. But this this is a joint, and there are a lot of these. Um, uh, that you'll see, and, uh, a lot of topography that you will see that are dependent upon the presence of these things. One of which, uh, is Neats Cooley, or the Narrows, sometimes called. Um, this is a Cooley that developed right along a fracture plane. Uh, erosion of the sandstone, just, waters just kept working away, working away, and, um, gouge this out. And if you happen to take shelter in one of these during a thunderstorm, like this crew and I did one day, and you you worry about the water rising at your feet, what you will notice is the amount of material that's shedding off of the sides of this thing. Just tons of material coming down in every storm that that goes through here. So, This again is the view across from Eagle Creek, at this point the river follows a perfectly straight line for three miles, and it's following this cliff face that you're looking at right here. Uh, This cliff face is developed on joint planes, so there is You can think of a joint, uh, the whole three miles there, that has formed this cliff um, that the river is following. What happens is, here again, this is the Claggett marine shale. It erodes away quite readily, so when the sandstone uh, loses its underpinnings like it has here, it falls off in blocks it doesn't ever slope back like, uh, like you would expect an erosional surface to do. It falls off in blocks, and behind the joint plane that we see, there are subsequent parallel joint planes, some of which have not manifested themselves in any way, but there's are still planes of weakness, and the boulders just keep coming down uh, in, a, in this nice straight line. Here's a Google Earth view of that. Here is here's Eagle Creek coming in. Here's the Eagle Creek campground. This this is a three-mile perfectly straight stretch of the river coming down to the south from there. Is that a, is the other side of also? It's not as prominent as what we're looking at here. That's why Everybody takes pictures of this, this part of it here, but it is continuing just bluffs coming off and coolies crossing it. The other side of the river, or the other side of the picture? The other side of the river, river, it's pushed back further. Um, the other side of the river, there's more coolies going back up and kinda pushing it back down, but there are cliffs back there as well. They're just not quite the same as that nice long one. Okay, if you think of this same fold, folded like this, pressure from the side, you push on that further and harder, eventually it breaks and then you get a fault and a fault in this configuration, um, we call reverse, or thrust faults, because older rocks are thrust over younger rocks in the process. There'll be a breakage, and that's what we're looking at right here. This is Eagle Sandstone, that's Clagget Shale, which is supposed to be on top of the Eagle Sandstone, (laughs) but here we see, the Eagle Sandstone sitting uh, above this younger Claggett shale. So this is a thrust fault. Technically speaking, it should be flatter to call it a thrust fault, but it's easiest to to grasp what I mean when I call it that. Um, now you'll see a lot of faults like that on the river, and I've plotted a number of these faults. There we are. These lines here represent thrust faults. Right over here is the uh, straight stretch of the, of the river, but you'll notice that they tend to be concentric around the Bear Paw Mountains. And this is a, really, an interesting phenomenon that was uh, first noted by a geologist named Frank Reeves back, Reeves, excuse me, back in the 1920s. And he postulated, and it's been very well accepted by geologists, that what happened when the uh, mountains, when the Bear Paw Mountains were uplifted, pushed up by, magma from below, it domed the sedimentary rocks above to the point where they literally slid off the side of the mountains. And this is uh, really something to a geologist. Um, There's a lot of bentonitic clay in, in, in the rocks that slid off. This clay tends to become real slippery, and so, supposedly, that's what happened. The uh, the rock slid off, so that way out here where these fractures, sli- sliding fractures then come up to the surface, and that's where you're seeing these these thrust faults, concentric around the mountains. Here's another bunch of stuff, you know, you see it in a lot of different shapes and forms, but you can just see that, that crowding and pushing that caused these rocks to, uh, fault. Is that the same kind of process that happened with the Sweetgrass Hills? With where? The Sweetgrass Hills uh, north and west of that? I don't know. Good question. I'll have to research that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised because they're very similar in geologic uh, history. Here's a chunk that is so complex structurally that I can't even explain it to you. In fact, we drifted by, this is one of the beauties of doing a a book like we did. We didn't have to figure everything out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember going by this and saying, Lee, look at this, look at those rocks over there. What do you think is going on? And Lee is a structural geologist by profession and he's looking at them and we're kind of looking. We keep paddling and pretty soon we're looking back. <laughs> Eddie makes a note, complex structure on the right. <laughs> that's where we leave that one, but that's all part of this this sliding and pushing mechanism. Okay, yeah, b- back, whoop, oh, this, we've seen this one before. Uh, we looked at the coal and the pumice, but look at here. That's Eagle Sandstone. This formation is the Judith River Formation, which is supposed to be way above the Eagle Sandstone. Well, this is, right through here is the fall that uh, one of these sliding faults that pushed the Eagle Sandstone up above the Judith River Formation. Now looking again at our concentric pattern, this is the river, excuse me, this is the river coming up here to Virgil. Look how it turns into that pattern, follows, right here it's following that joint plane but it tends to follow those concentric curves of those thrust faults until it finally breaks loose of them and cuts across and heads on down river. So again, joints and faults really have a lot of influence on the topography that you're seeing out there and, and this is why. This is uh, up above Little Sandy Creek, uh, obviously a teepee ring. To find these, you, uh, of course, you look for good campsites, sites, uh, good breeze, good view. Uh, any place that you think you might like to camp, uh, the Indians probably did too. Um, this The view that we're seeing here is virtually identical to the view that the uh, again, Indians would have seen uh, when they used this uh, ring of rocks to hold down their teepee skins, uh, year after year after year, probably the same rocks. It would have looked just, their view would have been just like this, except for this one little thing right here. Some of you, I'm sure, recognize the BLM toilet down there. (laughs) Um, Now, being geologists, Okay, we look at the rings, that's great, that's a historical thing. But we need to take a closer look at the rocks themselves. And we see that these are hard, crystalline, Precambrian, metamorphic rocks, the likes of which do not appear in place anywhere within at least a thousand miles of this location. And probably, uh, Meriwether Lewis saw these, maybe the same teepee rinks. He spent a lot of time walking in these ridges. He probably saw these rocks, didn't think a whole lot about it. He had nothing in his arsenal of knowledge to help him grasp the meaning of these rocks. We know today that these rocks could only have brought in by one means, and that is continental glaciation um, probably from at least a 1,000, maybe 1,500 miles away. We know, uh, also, those of us who live in the northern tier of states, are, who take an interest in any of this stuff, are kind of familiar with, with what, what it was like at the lower edge of these, of these continental glaciers during the Pleistocene. You had a lot of damming up of rivers, and pushing things around, um, the f- famous Missoula, Spokane, we call it the Spokane floods over there, I have to <laughs> call it the Missoula floods over here, uh, are a result of this sort of thing. Well, very similar things happened here in, in, uh, central Montana as well. We're right at the southern terminus of the, uh, furthest reach of the Continental Glaciation, which, uh, ended perhaps ten, twenty thousand 20,000 years ago. Um, the, the glaciers dammed the Missouri River, causing it, uh, lake, uh, glacial Lake Great Falls to, to form. Uh, you see the lake bed sediments around gla- Great Falls that were deposited during that period. Uh, there's, there was a big glacial lake mussel. River Musselshell Lake, I guess it is, further to the east. And we see ancient river valleys to the south of this front that uh, are dry, high and dry now, where we know that the river ran through trying to to make its way from west to east with its uh, course filled up with ice. To the north, we see, we don't see, but we know they're there buried river channels, where the river used to flow before the glaciers came down. The glaciers have now filled those channels in, and we know of them by, uh, from well logs and geophysical, uh, uh, exploration and so on. And I told you we'd get back to this stuff here. What we're seeing here is, um, poorly consolidated glacial debris deposited in uh, lake beds and river beds and so on, off the, f- the front of the glacier. Uh, the glaciers, the, the climate changed many times during the period that the glacial front was, was in this area from warmer to cooler to warmer to cooler. When it would warm up, a lot of water would come off the glaciers and come from under the glaciers, carrying material with it. (coughs) Lakes would form out in front. The stuff would dump into those lakes. You'd get these deposits, some of this type of material depositing. When the temperature cooled, the melting would slow and not much water would be coming off. But you'd have cold Arctic blasts of wind coming off that would blow this stuff around because the lakes would dry up, would blow this stuff around. So you have this sequence of uh combination of lake bed deposits, wind-blown deposits, riverine deposits, etc. etc. Just really mixed up. And it's there hasn't been a lot of geologic work done on this formation, but it's a great place to uh, learn some geologic history, I think, but very complex, very difficult to do also. And it's within these formation that these boulders exist. There'll be a stream channel buried in there somewhere that had boulders, rocks in it. When things erode away, those boulders really just go straight down. The this, this softer stuff is washed away, blown away, but heavy rocks just tend to go right straight down. So they're just sitting, that veneer of, of gravel that we see has just come straight down from, from up above. This is, uh, this is that same formation viewed from Fort Benton, this is the Marias River Shale down here. A lot of people think this is, uh, the Great White Cliffs of the river, but it's not. This is a soft, unconsolidated, poorly consolidated glacial formation. Now, it takes a- it could take a little bit of mental gymnastics to follow this, but this is the river today. Present course. Here's Great Falls down this way, Fort Benton, Loma, Virgil, and on down. Okay, This hash mark represents the southern extreme uh, edge of the glacier, the last continental glacier to come down. You see it buttressed against the Bear Paw Mountains and buttressed against the Highwood Mountains down here, and backed up the river to form, uh, Lake Great Falls, over in here. And, eventually, the river broke through around the front here, between the mountains and the glacial front, and came running down into Arrow Creek, those of you who've been down the river may remember Arrow Creek, um, and then headed on down in the course that we see it in today. Now, the reason we know it did that is if you remember your view of Arrow Creek as you go by here, you're looking at a huge valley as you look up, up the creek, and a little tiny creek running down the middle of it that could never have carved that valley. This valley is every bit as big as the Missouri River Valley that you've just been through. So that's how we know that little story. Um, before the glacier came down, the river followed a different course than it does today. It, it followed its present course. These arrows on here represent the old river channel, by the way, up to Loma and up to, about to Loma where it continued on north, around the Bear Paw Mountains, into the Milk River Valley, Milk River Drainage, what is now the Milk River Drainage up in here. Here again, we know this because of the huge size of the Milk River Valley, and the small size of the Milk River. Uh, The Judith River actually came in from the south, and this is before the glaciers it came over here and joined the uh, Missouri River heading up this way. Well, with the damming of the river and the breakthrough and all of this, the river established itself heading eastward right here. And eventually, from this point, cut its way through to this drainage and went down the river here. Up in here is where we, No, there are buried channels. Uh we know this from well logs and so on. This is uh that's Dr. Woodward. My wife is restoring this canoe, right? (laughs) It's kind of bleached out looking, isn't it? It's gonna be really pretty when she's done. She's got it in the garage right now. But this is shows the difference between the broad, old river valley um, above Fort Benton compared to what you know, the the narrow, rugged valley uh, further downstream. That's the point of this particular picture. You're all familiar with images of hole in the wall, high above the uh, Missouri River, a very prominent feature not mentioned by Meriwether Lewis, possibly did not exist when he came through. Pure speculation, but uh, it may well not have existed at that time. If we take a close look at it, we see why the, the hole is there. Here's a joint plane coming right down through here. Another joint plane kind of forming this, this side and another one over here forming this side and those rocks just fell out of there, <coughs> which can happen at any time. If you, <laughs> if you... <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't mean that that way. That's my daughter in there. <laughs> you look at this picture though, and you, th- you realize that could happen any time, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> yeah, got to laugh without even thinking about it. That's um, the eye of the needle. Uh, across from the Eagle Creek campground collapsed a few years ago. And I, I searched and searched for a poster, a wanted poster for who knocked down the eye out of the needle. Well, cooler heads prevailed and we thought a lot about it and obviously you look at the size of this valley and the amount of material that has come through it, come down off the sides, a lot of stuff comes down every year including fragile things like, I have the needle, and a hole in the wall here. So, <coughs> but why is, why is this ridge standing up? Where, you know, geologists are always, uh, curious about that. This is pretty soft stand, sandstone up there. If you look at this more distant picture of it, you see this dark material here. That's a dike that actually was responsible for the ridge to be out there in the first place. Now, the dike is pretty well eroded away, but these materials have been baked pretty hard. They're they're quite resistant to erosion, so they're taking a lot longer to come down than other sandstone areas would. This is uh, up on top there. This is dike material, and that's sandstone material right there. Great hike up there. Uh, you don't want to miss it if you can possibly get up. It's not the easiest thing, uh, to get up. Now, I mentioned material coming down the river. It comes down in various forms. Uh, we call this study of this sort of phenomenon, the study of mass, mass movement. We have the rock falls coming off of the, uh, sandstone bluffs. Uh, we have surfaces here where a phenomenon called creep takes place, and then the material makes its way into the river and is swept on down. And creep is uh, an interesting phenomenon that's taking place all the time uh, in many ways, but here is ice, freezing and thawing cycle. If you've got a little, a particle of any size here, when frost hits, that particle is pushed out that way. When it melts, the particle comes down that way. It has crept a little bit <laughs> every year. I mean, it's almost imperceptible, but that is taking place all the time. Anything that will tend to move a particle on a slope is going to have a downslope vector to it that is going to keep things moving. <coughs> We also have rotated slump blocks. You see a lot of these in particular in the lower part of the river in the bear paw formation. Where what we have here is you get saturation of these shales and weight built up on this, in these blocks. The saturation also tends to lubricate a surface and you can work out the physics to show that this surface is going to be a curved surface. The material slumps down and leans back as it, uh, as it slumps. And you see a lot of these on the river. Commonly, you'll see some evidence of water percolation up in here. You might see some phreatophytic plants up in here. This is a series of slump blocks working the way back up into the topography. This is Arrow Creek here. Here we have a close-up of this thing. This is a mile and a half long, and a half a mile wide, all in motion. And you don't want to mess with one of these things. There is nothing you can do about it. Uh, they're, They're in motion. You just... Don't put your house on on something that's liable to do this because there's no stopping them. I believe years ago there used to be a couple of these coming down onto Highway 191 up from James Kipp Park where the highway department just every year goes in and digs it off the highway and lets it come. There's nothing they can do about it. Here you see this white line is probably alkali, deposition, indication of water seepage coming to the surface there, so there's probably water involved keeping this thing going. River meanders, another another important phenomenon along the river, graceful sweeping curves that the river makes. This is up above uh, Fort Benton. there's a... uh, Google Earth view of the same location, Fort Benton right here. Uh, Nice agricultural land developed in, in the side of these curves. What we have happening here is the river sweeping around a curve, hitting a cut bank over here, come, sweeping back again, hitting a cut bank over here. And when this happens, the river actually banks up a little on that side like a bobsled run so that you'll get a subsurface current going in this direction, like this. That's what this is supposed to represent. It's awfully hard to draw a curve on a computer. I, I, this was years ago, I think I could do better now. But anyway, so you get material eroding off of this this side, depositing on this side. So this is constantly pushing its way over this way and building out this way. Now you think, well I've I've been down that river, I've never noticed a bobsled run going around those curves. Well, this happens during flood stage primarily. It's, it can be a really placid river most of the time, but it's during flood that, that this happens. And I don't know if any of you have tried going down during a flood. Um, I've been there, I've looked at it. I didn't want to put my canoe on it. It, uh, it really rips along. Here we are downstream a ways, and here you can see, right up here, sweeps around here, cuts into this bank, <coughs> also cuts into this bank, but it's got enough velocity that it carries the material right on around. Well, let's see, let's let's do that right here. Cuts into this bank, coming around, depositing material over here, cutting away over here. And then, bang, it hits it again, hits the side, down cutting here, depositing over here. So, it makes very little progress against the uh, the main outcropping of the valley walls here, most of its energy is consumed in moving this material downstream. And (coughs) so you can see, as you're cutting away here, building here, cutting away here, all of this is migrating down the river uh, on its way to Louisiana. And, you know, we talked earlier about these materials eroding off of the precursors to the Rocky Mountains 100 million years ago. They were washed down. The erosion wants to move this stuff to base level, which is sea level. Well, it did it. It deposited it at sea level. But lo and behold, the, the sea level moved. The ocean moved. It's base level is now. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So, now it is, the river is trying to move its material to the Gulf of Mexico, and this is the mechanism by which it does it. Let me come back to that, and then just a quick note here on this, on this steamboat. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with these poles here, called grasshopper poles. These boats had to use these to get themselves over shoals, and rapids, and bars, and so on. This is one point where they had to do that. This is Cow Island, right here. The uh, steamboats would come up here if the water was high enough. They would grasshopper pull over this series of shoals here that have developed For some reason, I'm not particularly clear why right here. Uh, If they couldn't get over it, they'd have to offload right here. And if they could get enough material off to raise the level of their keel, they could go over and upstream and reload. If they couldn't go any further, they had to haul the material all the way to Fort Benton in ox carts. You can just imagine what a pound of sugar cost in Fort Benton back in those days. But the, uh, the really significant thing about this scene is this is the location where Chief Joseph and his band of 750 Nez Perce Indians on their desperate run to the Canadian border, found to cross the Missouri River. How they found this site, I'm not sure. I, I'd like to know if anybody has any idea. Did they give help finding it? Did they follow ancient trails or what? But they came on to Cow Island, followed it up to the north, and crossed back to the mainland, walked right along the the river's edge here to this shallow area right here, where they were able to cross, all 750 of them, warriors, old people, Children, they had a little skirmish with some uh, freight haulers over here. I don't know if anybody died and all of that, but they got the whole 750 of them across the river. And it's to me, if you, if you get a chance to go through this area, drift your canoe very slowly and quietly right along here, and you'll be within five feet of a little trail. That I would assume is a continuation of the trail that those 750 Indians followed to get up to that crossing point. So the um, the pulse of the river has changed a lot since Lewis and Clark's time. Uh, damming of the river itself, right here, for one dam and uh, near Great Falls, and, and in side tributaries and so on, has, uh, tempered the pulse of the flooding sequences. Typically, the river floods, uh, in March, when the lowlands melt off, and it floods again in July, when the mountain runoff takes place. Now, the, uh, su- I think this is really significant in keeping with the schedule that Lewis and Clark were on. In March, during the early runoff, they were still at Mandan getting ready to make their trip. They came up the river and complained all the time about low water and rapids and all this and that, approached Great Falls early in July and started complaining about the fast water they were hitting. They spent the month of July portaging Great Falls and I think that's really fortuitous because I think they were portaging during the July flood. If they had hit one of those floods it may have delayed them such that they would not have made it across the mountains by winter. So I think that's that's a theory I have, I don't know if, if it's true or not. Something to contemplate. Um, the most common question geologists get along the river is what are those petrified vegetables that uh, we see out there and it's a great mystery to people and, doggone, I'm out of time. Well, I can't tell you the answer. <laughs> I, really, I'm out of time. So I'd I, I just as soon leave you thirsting for more <laughs> uh, than give you all the answers. I do have, uh, oh, we have, uh, it, the answer to that relates to hoodoos. It relates to uh, some of the ridge tops that you see. It relates to the love of my life that I found out there early one morning, the goddess of the dawn when I was under the influence of sleep deprivation and maybe s- some snobs, but anyways, uh, when you, when you understand those things, I've got a baseball-sized ones here, uh, portable size, you know, the geologists that, that commonly say the size of the sample is inversely proportional to the distance to the pickup truck, so I've got, <laughs> I've got a fist-sized one. Uh, There are fossils, I've got some fossil specimens up here you can take a look at, and I'll leave you with that beautiful view of the Judith River Formation, and I'm going to hang around a while if anybody has questions. I do appreciate your attention. It's very flattering that you even listen, believe me. (laughs)